Graham can change your life. Let me start. I was born in 1961. My mother was 16 and my dad was 18. So they were kids when they were raising my brother and I. Um, I grew up in an upper middle class family, but when I was 14, I started drinking beer, sneaking beer out of the refrigerator and taking it out with friends. And by the time I was 16, uh, in Texas at that point in time, the legal drinking age was 18. So at 16, you could pass for 18. And I was driving and I knew a couple of stores on the north side of Fort Worth I could buy beer. I was, as I look back, I was a full on alcoholic at 16. Drinking beer a lot. I was rodeoing, I know that's hard for y'all to believe. I was rodeoing at the time and drinking a lot of tequila and taking speed to go drive to rodeos. I got a, a scholarship to go to college in 1979 uh, to be on the rodeo team at Tarleton State University. So I was riding bulls and bareback horses and living that lifestyle. Tough guy, all that bullshit, right? Thinking you're better and, and really, I, I'm not that guy. I'm really not that guy, and I'll get to that point later. Um, after I got my first college degree in 1983, I moved to Austin to get my MBA, and I discovered the heavenly drug of cocaine. Cocaine was big in Austin at the time, big across the United States, and I started snorting cocaine in 1983, and therein started the real problem. I knew how to snort cocaine and drink to have the mix, that you never looked drunk and you never looked high, but I was completely fucked up, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been there. You're just completely fucked up, but you don't look that way. And I, and I enjoyed the hell out of it, y'all. Um, it just, I was working at State Capitol in the 80s. And uh, I snorted cocaine with a few members of the legislature. I know you find that hard to believe. Um, and drank with a bunch of them. But anyway, I went to law school and got my law degree in 91, got licensed to practice law. Went to work at a large insurance company and became very successful as a lawyer defending HMOs, the bad boys of the insurance industry. And I became the expert and the point person and the whole time I was doing that, I was very successful. A lot of money, and I was snorting a lot of cocaine every day and drinking a whole lot every single day. But I could perform at the highest levels, right? So I am a definite alcoholic and al addict because on the outside, I look manageable. On the inside, I am just hiding all the demons that scare the shit out of me. I just wanted to be liked. Y'all, I'm just, on the exterior, I may try to portray this image of being tough, but in here, I'm just a scared little boy. And all I want is you people to like me. That's the way I grew up. And so it, it had a tremendous effect on me the whole time. And that's the reason I went to alcohol and drugs, because I could be somebody that I really wasn't. That scared little boy in here, I could become Jeff. Right? The high-powered lawyer. So the whole time that I worked at the insurance company, then I went, oh, by the way, I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in 1997. 
the day in the life of an HMO lobbyist. And, you know, I was, I was living the high life. I went to work at Vincent and Elkins, a large law firm here in Austin, a prestigious firm. And I was snorting coke and drinking every day. I was in court high, as you can imagine, just living the life. And uh, let me let me back up a little bit. I, I, I want to tell you something that's important. Back when I was a teenager, my parents, my dad was out carousing around and sleeping around on my mother, and he was out every night. And particularly on Friday nights, my mother wanted to not be alone, so she, I was her drinking partner. And we drank beer every Friday night, and we would chew up the record, pop the top again, and we'd both pop the top on a can of beer, and there it started. I drank with my mother keep her company. We watch Dallas every Friday night at 9 p.m. So, yeah, we're white trash. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of, of coming from a white trash background. So that's, I wanted to tell that. My parents threw a beer party for me when I was 18 and invited everybody over to the house so they condoned drinking alcohol. And by the way, a funny part of the story is, is I kissed my very first girl in the back seat of my mother's car that was parked in the garage that night on my 18th birthday. So, you know, I just, I had to get drunk to be able to even attract somebody, right? <laughs> the only way I could do it is being drunk. Because I was a complete fucking dork. I was a goofy kid, I was a cowboy, and they called me goat roper and all of that. <laughs> and, you know, as many of you will say, well, Jeff, you're still a dork, you haven't changed a bit, and that's okay. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll get back to the point of the story. I'm practicing law, I'm snorting coke, drinking, just out of control. The cocaine habit was huge, and I drank every single day, y'all. I drove around with the styrofoam cup, full of ice with a bottle of B&B. B&B was my liquor of choice and I drank it every day for 30 years till I quit every single day. I snorted cocaine and I drank B&B for 30 years. 2001, I walked into my house and my parents were sitting there and my brother was sitting there and there was somebody else sitting there, I think, I think this is an intervention. <laughs> so they said, Jeff, you've got a problem. You're going to the airport tomorrow morning. You're going to treatment. The important part of that story is I hadn't admitted I was powerless over alcohol. They admitted that I was powerless over alcohol, right? So I went to treatment for 30 days. And then while I was in treatment at Sierra Tucson, this highfalutin treatment facility, that's a clinical model. You, they took you to a few AA meetings, but they didn't really introduce you to the steps. So while I was in treatment, I was planning my relapse when I got out. There was cocaine already in my car when I got out so that when I got home, I could snort coke and start all over again. So I didn't pay a bit of fucking attention in treatment. And I, what I really thought, and the big book talks about this, what I really thought is I got a 30-day reprieve. Now I can come out and I can snort and drink like a gentleman and do it the right way and, and not go overboard. No, I went right back at it. Right back at it in 2001. I got married in 2006 and we had a child. Um, and 
In 2007, there was another intervention. And I went back to Sierra Tucson and came back and lasted 60 days this time and went right back at it. So I'm married, I have two kids at home, I'm snorting coke every day, drinking, doing what alcoholics do, right? I'm out of control, but I'm still living a life. I'm not really present at home, I'm gone all the time. So 2013 rolls around. February the 8th of 2013, I told my wife I was going to Dublin, Texas, where my family business is. And I checked into my favorite hotel where I used to hole up. You know how we go in and check into hotel rooms by ourselves? <laughs> Seriously, get drink and snort until 4 o'clock in the morning, all by myself. How stupid is that? I mean, I am so heavily involved in my addiction that I just want to be alone with my alcohol and my cocaine. That, those were my friends. And uh, February the 8th of 2013, when I checked into that room, uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, my left leg went numb. And I knew something was wrong, and I called an ambulance, and the ambulance came and picked me up, and they took me to the hospital. And the next morning, a, a doctor walked in and a priest walked in. I thought, oh, shit, am, am I going to die? And the doctor said, Jeff, you've had a massive stroke. Your life will be forever different. Because you'll never drive a car again. You'll never ride your bicycle again, which was a passion of mine. And he says, I'm afraid to tell you, you might not ever walk again. I was in St. David's Hospital. And, of course, my wife, when I'm in the wheelchair, my wife, who's six foot tall, standing over me, calling me an asshole. You did this to yourself. You've ruined the family. You, you don't know. You have no willpower. You can't stop. And just berated me every day about what a loser and what a little life I was. So I was in the hospital and I learned to walk again. And uh, one day, that f the stroke was in February and in April, I did what any respectful alcoholic or cocaine addict would do and that's, well shit, I could keep doing this. So I called my cocaine dealer and he came to the hospital and I had seriously <laughs> brought it to the room and on one of my walks they let us walk around because I'd learned to walk again. I was at St. David's Hospital. So I walked over to the Specs liquor store on Airport Boulevard and picked up a bottle of B and B in my backpack, stopped at Wendy's and got a cup of ice and I was back at it while I was in the hospital shows you how powerless you really can be. And I still remember this day, and I want to share this with y'all. My cocaine dealer came to the room, and I'm standing there, and I've got the cup of B&B &B hidden so the nurses don't see it. And I pull out the bag, and I get the straw, short straw out. Y'all remember those, right? right. The cocaine addicts, a little short straw reading, right? I put some cocaine in the straw and I put it to my nose and I looked in the mirror and I still remember, like it was yesterday, I looked in the mirror and said, Jeff, the doctor said if you have another stroke, you'll probably die. And I thought about it for a minute. There was that moment of clarity where I thought about, should I do this cocaine? And you guys know what the answer is. 
I said, fuck it. I'm going to do it. And I did it. And that's how powerless I was. I just, I knew I made a conscious decision to keep going instead of heeding advice and risking my life. So that went on. That was April. I was in the hospital. And I kept drinking and snorting, and I was hiding it because I was going to physical therapy every day, but I was actually walking to the liquor store. And um, on June the 17th, right after my birthday of June 14th of 2013, I was living with my former wife then, with two kids at home, and we entered through the garage door and then walked in through the kitchen door into the house. You didn't use the front door, right? So I walked into the garage like I usually do, and it was an afternoon. And all of a sudden, something came over me. And I stopped dead in my tracks in the garage, and I put my hands up and said, I need help. Please help me. And I walked in, handed my bag to my wife, and said, I've got a problem. Take this from me. She took the bag, took the cocaine out of it, and took the alcohol out of it. And I called my brother, and I said, Mark, I need help. So right there were the first two steps, y'all. I admitted I was powerless when I put my hands in the air. And then when I asked for help, I was taking the second step. A power greater than myself can restore us to sanity. I asked for help for the first time in my life on June 17. 2013, 52 years old, right? That's sad. 30 years of drinking and drugging, 52 years old, and finally it came over me that I can't do this anymore. I called my brother. He suggested I go to the retreat in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a 12-step-based program, and I want you to hear that a 12-step based program, I finally was introduced to the 12 steps. And we, we worked at it, and we had to have a sponsor when we got out, and I finally started working the steps with the sponsor. And folks, I'm five years sober from, from being involved in a program. What I did was I listened to people, and I had hope for a better life. I had hoped that I could be a de different man. So when they said, you ought to go to sober living and you ought to go to outpatient treatment, I said, yes, I'll do that. Before, I was in a hurry to get home and go back to work and get back to my using. So when I left Sierra Tucson, nah, no sober living, no outpatient, fuck that. I don't need that. I've had 30 days of treatment. I'm good. This time I lived in a sober living house in St. Paul, Minnesota for a year. 52 years old, living in a house with 13 guys in their 20s and their 30s, and talk about being humbled. Right, I have a nice big house in Westlake with a wife and two kids, and I'm living in the duplex in St. Paul, Minnesota with 13 guys, and my chores cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> so, humility, right? I was high flying, 
everything anybody could want, and here I am living in a house with 13 guys away from home. But it's the best thing I ever did in my life. I went started going to a meeting every day, walked into a meeting, and I got involved in the program, and I started to have those spiritual experiences. They would happen when I would walk into the meeting room, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this is powerful. Just being in this room is powerful. I, maybe I can stay sober. So I started my habit of going to meetings. And I'm happy to report to you that I've been to a meeting every day for five years, over five years now. This is part, meetings aren't the only way I stay sober, y'all. Meetings are just a part of it. I've adopted Bolden as my home group. I leased my house. The criteria was I need a place to live that's walking distance to Bolden. Right? That's, that's a little different in choosing your house. You choose your house because you're close to schools or you're close to work or whatever. No, I had to be close to Bolden, so I leased the house eight houses up. If you ever walk past the house with a seven-foot cock in the front yard, that's my house. <laughs> so I tell people, just go to the house with a seven-foot cock, and that's where I live. <laughs> right up the street. Go check it out. I'm not lying. You guys, some of you guys have seen it, so y'all know. But the point is, here's the hope part. I know I have 30 minutes, and I'm at 25 minutes, so I'm, I'm doing this on a timely basis, right? I work the steps. I believe in service work. I when I was in Minnesota, I volunteered at the intergroup office every day for the year I was there. We had a requirement to work. Well, I didn't need money, I, I, but I volunteered at intergroup for my work requirement. And I came here and I volunteered at an intergroup and I, I got to Bolden and I came to a steering committee meeting and I said, I'm willing to do anything. And I it may have been you, Matt, that said, how about you be chairman? I, I don't know if it was you or if it was Reese, but I don't remember. One of you guys said, how about this guy be chairman? And all of a sudden I became the chairman of the steering committee. And I started doing service work. And I started to feel good about this program. And I started to feel good about myself. You know, my wife reluctantly let me come back home and live at home. <clears throat> reluctantly. And I came home and I was finally a present father for the first time. And a decent husband who was at home and working and doing the right thing. And it was all because of this program. All of a sudden, my life had changed. I was actually working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, talking to my sponsor, doing service work, coming to meetings, reading the big book, all the things they say you're supposed to do. Well, I'm living proof that that works, like many of you in this room. But I preach. I try to do this attraction, not promotion, but if anybody wants to talk to me, I talk about how AA and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. 
I'm a decent guy now. You know, and I'll, I'll close with this. The other, oh, it was a few weeks ago. Oh, by the way, let me tell you, both of my parents died my second year of sobriety. And my wife divorced me the next year. She called me in and said, Jeff, I know you're doing good. She goes, but I live in fear every day that I'm going to come home and you're going to be drunk. And she goes, I don't want to live in fear that the other shoe's going to drop and I want you to move out. And I want a divorce. So she divorced me in the second year of sobriety, uh, which was hard to take, y'all. Real hard to take. I thought I was doing everything right. But I didn't get to live at home with my kids anymore. And uh, didn't make me go drink. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. I didn't go back to my old friend. thought, I need to stay sober on behalf of myself to be a decent guy and those around me. So I moved away and I lived in Dublin for a year. That was a trick. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, I town of 3,000, I lived there for a year. <laughs> and uh, the AA meetings there in Stephenville, I may say something offensive here, but anyway, a bunch of stupid white guys in a room who have no tolerance for anybody that's not like them and talk bad about, you can imagine. So I didn't really fit in very well, but I survived that for a year. And when I got to Austin, I came to Bolden, and here I am sober five years in my home group with people who I know love me and care about me. And I'm going to close with this. As I look around the room and look at you people, I love each and every one of you, and I mean that sincerely. I do. You're my family. You don't make fun of me. You support me, and I appreciate that. My name is Jeff. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Thank you for having me. I was on the speaker circuit in Minnesota, and I see of taking questions. If if we have yeah, absolutely five minutes, ten minutes, we got plenty of time. Um, my my speech was only supposed to be thirty minutes, right? When I was rodeoing, I was found speed and tequila was pretty much gave me the balls to get up on those bulls, and. Uh, Somehow I survived that. I had a few injuries, got stomped on a few times. Got the back of my head cratered and some, some other stuff, broke some ribs. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. It was really fun. It, it allowed me to be outside of myself, to be somebody different other than the scared little boy. I got to be the macho dude. I'm in college on a rodeo scholarship. Look at me. I'm a tough guy. First time I got arrested was at Tarleton. I was riding home with a friend from the bar. He got stopped, suspicion of DWI, and they got me out of the car. And the habit then was if there's somebody sober in the car, they'll let them drive home. The police officer got me out of the car and said, young man, are you capable of driving? I got out of the car and he says, no. <laughs> 
just put your hands behind your back. And I got arrested for public intoxication. That was the first time. That was in 19, I don't remember, 80-something, early, early 80s, 81, maybe. And that was the first time that I got arrested again when I was at Tarleton for being at a party where the police had showed up and we were being too noisy. And I decided I would be the spokesperson for the party, <laughs> right? Because I'm smart. So I'll be the spokesperson. Well, I walked outside and I was the spokesperson. And the next thing I know, I'm in a police car. <laughs> um, they arrested the spokesperson for public intoxication the second time. Second time, I had to call my grandfather to come get me out of jail. That's humiliating. I looked up to my grandfather. He taught me the value of working for a living. I went to work at the bottling plant when I was 12. And they said, listen, we've got money, but son, you're going to have to learn to work for money before you get money from us. And that's where I learned the value of working. And when my grandpa came and got me out of jail, I could see this the sadness in his eyes and it broke my heart that I had let him down. I'd let my family down. But that's just part of the story. Going to jail, I guess most of us, a lot of us have been to jail, right? Yeah. Yeah. Drinking related. Um, I never got arrested for suspicion of DWI. And I drove drugs <laughs> a goddamn many times. It is a miracle that I never got arrested, stopped, suspicion of DWI because I was driving way drunk. And I appeared in federal court in Austin, Texas, at the federal courthouse on behalf of one of my clients. And I was so jacked up, I can't believe that I was able to perform. But we won. Right? We, we got our way. And here I am outside of myself, jacked up on coke and alcohol. That's what any good lawyer would do. Let me tell you a little secret at Vincent and Elkins. None of you practice there, do you? <laughs> I didn't see any hands. So we had this little system at the firm that you would get a text. Back then we had Blackberries. Remember those were the first to handheld devices? You get this text, there was a group of about 10 of us who were cokeheads, lawyers, high-powered lawyers at Vincent and Elkin. You get a text that says, lunch delivery is here. Oh, yeah. So we'd go to the conference room on the 31st floor, sit around the table, and then the guy would walk in with the briefcase and open it up and sell cocaine to us at the firm. Um, that's what we did. Lawyers are notorious for being alcoholics, right? And lawyers generally are type A personalities, hard driving. Well, you put together a hard driving type A personality with cocaine, and you can imagine it's a fucking asshole, right? <laughs> you, you just think you are better than everybody in the world, and you're just as not scared at all. And it allowed me to do a lot of things I couldn't have done any other way. 
I got to do a lot of things when I was drinking and drugging, traveling. I remember one time we were drinking at a bar in downtown Austin, and we said, let's go have some Cajun food. And I said, all right. So I called Austin Business Jets and rented a jet at $10,000 and flew to Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana, and we got out and rented a limo and went and had Cajun food and came back. Right? That's how stupid you are when you're jacked up on cocaine. I bought, I thought that I wanted, do y'all remember the Hummer H1s, the great big ones that were civilian vehicles, the great big obnoxious things? <laughs> One day I was sitting in my office and I decided I wanted one. <laughs> so I did what any self-respecting alcoholic and cokehead would do is I called the dealership in Alvin, Texas and said, I want a yellow Hummer, I wanted something really obnoxious. <laughs> so I bought it over the phone. Never had driven one. $110,000. That's one of my stupid stories stupid shit that you do when you're drunk and on cocaine buy a $110,000 car over the phone. (laughs) I'm glad y'all are laughing because I can laugh at myself now. Normal people don't do that. Right? Y'all laugh with me. Shit, that's stupid. I mean, but it was part of my story. And so I, I'm qualified to be, call myself an alcoholic and an addict. I, I'm lucky that I'm here. You guys know that I have weakness on the left side. I can never drive a car again because of my vision. Let me tell you a funny story. They sent me to a neuro-ophthalmologist, a specialist in brain and eye problems because it's the brain that doesn't process the picture. My, my eyeballs are perfectly fine. It's what they take a picture and the brain processes it, right? And gives you information. Well, I don't see anything on the left. My depth of perception is gone. So I go to see this neuro ophthalmologist and she walks out and she said, well, you're an interesting case. I said, well, tell me. And she goes, Listen, I, you seem like you're a reasonable guy. She goes, let's cut to the chase. I'm not going to give you all the medical terms. Jeff, your vision is fucked up. Now, <laughs> I think I knew that. But here's the good part of the story. I can't drive. I run. Y'all see that I have injuries on my face a lot, right? I run into trees and I run into cabinets, and y'all laughed at me and asked me who beat you up and stuff like that. But it's myself doing it. I'm blessed beyond belief to be standing here talking to y'all. I don't wake up in the morning worrying about what I don't have that I don't walk very well and I can never run again and I can never drive again. I wake up every morning and thank my higher power that I can stand here in front of y'all and I can talk. My face doesn't droop. 
I'm not in a wheelchair, I'm lucky, or I'm blessed, or my higher power had a better plan. I like to look at it as is that I didn't know about my higher power when I had the stroke, but my higher power is looking out for me and said, listen, we're going to give you a chance because I got a plan for you. I'm, I'm the H&I guy for Bolden. We take meetings to a couple of treatment centers, and I get to reach out to a lot of people, and I love it. And I truly believe that my higher power's plan for me is to be of service and to use my story as an example to others that no matter what the consequences of your drinking and drugging, you can have a better life by getting sober and by working this program. So I wake up every day and I thank my higher power for what I have. Do y'all hear me bitch much in here about what I don't have? No. I don't. I don't bitch. I wish it were different. I cry sometimes because I can't do stuff with my kids. That I could go with that. Could I can't get on the bicycle and show them how to ride? But it's okay. Because I get to be a present father. And that's good, right? It doesn't matter what I don't have. What I do have is the blessing. I have the ability to stand here and talk to y'all. I have the ability to be sober and to talk about it. You know, Stacy, my former wife, said to me a few weeks ago, she goes, you know, Jeff, when you were drinking... I looked for the bad in you. And she goes, I can find every piece of bad. And she goes, I'm sorry I belittled you all the time. She goes, but now you're a different man. She goes, and Jeff, today, I look for the good in you, and there's a lot there. Well, well, I actually have changed. I may not know it, but she sees it. She doesn't want to be married to me, but we're best friends. And we co-parent the children, and I get to go spend the night over there with the kids when she's out of town. And she trusts me now. She trusts me. Wow. Be getting sober and working a program brought back some things I thought I had lost forever. The ability to be with my kids, the ability to be friendly with my former wife. I get to be a present father. You know, a couple of things that I left out. When my parents died my second year of sobriety, I got to go make amends to both of them. But they were not married. They'd been divorced since 95 because my dad was an asshole. Um, and I had a resentment against my dad. I didn't talk to him for 15 years. And we kind of got back together. And my dad never said he loved me until he was diagnosed with ALS and he was sitting in an electric wheelchair and he couldn't talk very well. And he says, son, I love you and I'm sorry I wasn't a very good father. And I made my amends to him as he sat in that electric chair or wheelchair where he spent his last... He was diagnosed and was dead 18 months later. I got to make my amends to him, and he looked at me, and he said, Son, I never thought I'd see you sober. Thank you. I can go to my grave knowing that you're okay. 
and my mother, completely separate from my immense to my father, I looked at her and she had cancer. I looked at her and I made my amends. And she was Jeffrey. That's the Jeff was a normal. Jeffrey was when I was in real bad trouble, <laughs> or when she was going to be real serious with me. She goes, Jeffrey. Thank you, but all I care about is that I get to see you sober before I die. And she died. And so, it's a blessing, y'all, to get to make amends to your parents. And then they both died. And so I got to make peace with them. And the biggest gift to me is not that I got to make amends to them. The biggest gift is is that they saw that my sobriety was a blessing for them. And they felt like they could go to the grave knowing that our son's okay. Right? And I could see it in their eyes. And so when I think about them, I know that they're at peace with me being sober. My kids are at peace with me. I get to go with my oldest son to the UT football game tomorrow. We get to go hang out and have fun. And we get to, let me tell y'all something funny. So I've got this seven foot cock in the front yard. <laughs> and I've got this two and a half foot chicken in the backyard, which is the decoration back there. So we come home from Chewy's a couple of months ago when my oldest son is 12 and my youngest son is 10, Connor and Luke. Connor gets out of the car and says, that's my cock. Luke's cock's in the backyard. (laughs) And my former wife looked at me and said, these are your sons. That's your issue. They're cool kids. All right, anybody got any questions? We're getting close to the end. Sure, somebody ask me a question. Please. What was the hardest part that you faced in working the the steps, and how'd you get through it? Taking the first step. That was the hardest thing I ever did, was finally admit that I was powerless. Finally. After all the shit I went through. After all the disappointment, all the broken hearts, all the running marriages, the first step was the hardest. And that's the honest answer. When I finally admitted I was powerless, I was able to go through these steps with my sponsor. I was able to do the work with peace, clarity, and serenity, which are, by the way, tattooed on my leg. I did that for a reason. Right here it is. Serenity, peace, grace, and clarity. I live that way. I get up every morning, y'all. And the first thing I do is I look in the mirror and I go, I am free, I am free, I am free. And then I say the third step prayer and then I say a version that takes in the 11th step. God, I offer my life and my will over to you as I understand you, and I pray only for knowledge of your will for me. I voice this without reservation, so be it. That's the prayer I say every morning. And I meditate. I put on some calm meditation music, turn on the electric water fountain, 
and sit there and actually do this the way they tell you to do it. And every day's the same. But every day I get to walk here and I get to walk into this room and I'm really at peace when I walk in here. So Brandon, the first step was the hardest. You know how many times I said I was powerless from 2001 until 2013? Thousands. Look, a sponsor dead in the eye. Oh, yeah, I admit I'm powerless. I'm bullshit. I never admitted it. By the way, when I came back 2001 and I picked my first sponsor, let me tell you how I picked my sponsor. I picked him because he said he was the drummer for the band Ministry, which I love. <laughs> I said, dude, will you be my sponsor? Because I can tell everybody my sponsor is the drummer for Ministry. Ain't that cool? Well, all the wrong reasons, right? I got a sponsor in Minnesota that I still talk to. I have a sponsor here, a couple of them, actually. So, yeah. That's good stuff. Anybody else have a question? I got a question. Yes, uh, two quick questions. First of all, um, are you still a practicing lawyer? And the second question is, I noticed you give out candy at meetings, which I think is awesome, but I was just wondering what, what inspired you to do that. I've got an answer for both those questions, <laughs> and I appreciate you asking me. Yes, I'm still licensed to practice law. I never got a complaint at the state bar. I never got disbarred, so I still have my law license. I practice law on behalf of the company that I own. I help people in this room who have legal questions on occasion. And yes, I'm going to stay licensed to practice law because that was something that my grandmother was very proud of. And she was kind of the matriarch of our family. In honor of her and myself, I'm going to keep my license until the day I die. <coughs> yes. Now, the candy, I started when I was going to a meeting in Minnesota because I was going to eat a little bit of it. And I went to a meeting and, and people started to say, Can I have some? And all of a sudden, I developed this deal where I love, absolutely am enthralled with the look on your face. And I'm looking, I'm looking around the room when, when you get candy and you say thank you. That makes my day. And that's the reason I do it every day. Because it brings joy. And it's so cool when a newcomer walks in here and I reach back and give them a candy bar and they say, what do I owe you? And it's like, nothing. Bless you. This is yours. And they, they have that look of somebody actually gives a shit. What a feeling. I'm not going to ever stop bringing this because I think it brings joy to people. Oh, yeah. And I want to do that. I want to share the love. You know, I, it's all about loving your fellows and trying to show by example that we can actually coexist and we can bring love. And I hope that you pass it down so I'll never stop bringing it in. That's. That's just my gig, and I love doing it. I absolutely love doing it. 
So please keep taking it from me. Give me a reason to get it. And we'll, we'll enjoy it. Yes, sir, Jim. Yeah, this is not a question so much as a statement. As I sit here at the 530, and Jeff sits here, and bag of candies down there, and like, uh, uh, I don't know anybody that I've met in here is more solid than this thing than Jeff is. And like, uh, he's a wonderful person, and like, uh, you know, we have these big book meetings, and it has this chapter in it, it's called Family Afterward, and it's kind of dated, but like one thing is like, Jeff is like the family afterward, it's one of the most inspiring things, because I've watched him, I've been coming in here since he's been coming in here, and saw these things that he's talking about going through with his family. And he went through all those things, and he didn't drink, and now he, you know, has a family that's like, has a sober father, and, uh, you know, I salute you. Thank you, Jim. My kids came to watch me get my five-year pin, and my former <laughs> wife came, and they supported me. You're exactly right. Yes, who else? Somebody had their hand up. Hi, uh, oh, Alan. One thing I just want to say is thank you for the candy, because sometimes it's not the joy that brings us the relief. And thank you for, like, because you always tell me pretty much every day, uh, I love you and I'm glad you're here, which is, I mean, you, you know. But uh, I was wondering if you could tell people what cocaine did to your nose. I've got a, and anybody wants to see it, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, uh, for real, awesome. I have a textbook case and an extreme case of a perforated septum. I have no septum. You can see right through it. I can, if you want me to show you, I can stick my finger through it. <laughs> really, I can. I can stick his finger through the hole and it comes out the other side. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I have a uh, perforated septum from snorting too much cocaine. Yeah. My sinus problems. <laughs> no, but here's the deal. I can't use a neti pot because it's just... No. <laughs> yes, sir. Can we can we go take a picture in front of your cock after the meeting? Let's go. I'll stand there proudly. Hey, I, I, I would. That's, that's, that's what Jeff's cock. Yeah. yeah. I just want to... Are you take your desk cock here? No, I want to take a picture with it. <laughs> well, speaking of which, the 7-foot cock's getting a little rusty, and so Jeff, a guy that comes here as a painter, is going to paint it for me. And he said, I'm going to use an oil-based paint. And I told my boys that I was going to use an oil-based paint. And my boys always ask me, Daddy, when are you going to get your cock oiled? <laughs> For real, I'm not lying. And, and the former wife just looks back in the back seat of the car and shakes her head. <laughs> you created this. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy to take a picture. I'll just take a picture at school. Yeah. Any other questions? No. I have a question. Yes. How did you go from uh, rodeo to practicing law? Like, what was the transition? I rodeoed because I wanted to be cool and I thought it was fun. And I came to Austin, and here's the part I didn't tell you. I came to Austin and I became a Category 1 road bike racer. So I went from rodeo, went to racing bicycles and practicing law. 
You know, I was working at the Capitol, and if you would have asked me when I was in high school and when I got my first college degree and when I got my MBA, would I be a lawyer? The thought never crossed my mind. Seriously, never crossed my mind. I was working at the Capitol, and I saw a lot of people become successful lobbyists. The trick was getting licensed to practice law so you could charge an arm and a leg for your time. So I got accepted. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I got accepted to UT Law School. It's real hard to get into UT Law School, and I, I got in and did really well. And uh, I got to go be a lawyer, and I love being a lawyer. So that's, that's how it happened. It wasn't by design that, you know, when I was a kid, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. Shit, I know what I was going to be. <laughs> thought I was going to run the bottling business, but now I'm running the bottling business. Kind of full circle. Hmm. <laughs> Anybody else? All right. I, I love you guys. I really do. Love you. Thank, you. Thank you so much.